Good morning, church. Uh, my name's Sam, for those of you who don't know me, and I have the honour of reading today's Bible passage. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you and you would like a copy, please just raise your hand, and one of the hospitality members would be more than happy to provide you one. Um, and if you don't own a Bible and would like one, please let us know at the end of the service, and we're more than happy to gift you one as well. Today, um, the sermon will be based on the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 20, which can be found on page 781 in the Church Bible. Uh, specifically, I'll be reading from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, as well as Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. Here at Providence, we believe that the Bible is a comprehensive collection of truths from God, and through it, God speaks, us, uh, speaks to us directly. He lets us know who He is, what He has done, and what He plans to do in the future. The Bible also guides us on how we should live, how we should respond to Him, and accept Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who are among us. Let us read now from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, again on page 781. God's righteous judgment. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the very same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Moving on to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. No one is righteous. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poisons of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that you speak to us through it. Even today, in 2021, we can hear you uh, uh, through the Word of God, hear you speak to us, and we do pray that your Spirit will be at work today. Your Spirit will be work in our hearts, helping us to turn to you, to know you, to know ourselves better, and to, to consider how we can live for you, because you are worthy of it. You're worthy of our lives. And so we do pray for that today, Lord, as we hear from Romans. Uh, in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Let me ask you guys a question. Uh, to start off, I always, I've been asking you guys questions and interacting a little bit with you guys each week. Uh, this is a, I'm going to ask a series of three questions today, and I want you guys to just um, play along with me. It's, it's just for fun, okay? It's not intended to get too spicy. But let's keep it cool. Uh, and don't worry, no one's going to hold you to these things, so don't feel like you're going to get judged for them, all right? I'm going to ask you three questions. The first question, and I'm going to ask you to just put your hand up and make a vote, okay? This is just a voting. Okay, the first question is going to be a bit lighthearted to get you in the mood. Which villain, okay, do you consider more evil? All right, the first option is Voldemort. Harry Potter, Voldemort. You guys should know who that is. The second one is Thanos from Avengers. All right, so who do you think is more evil? Who thinks Voldemort is more evil? Ooh. Who thinks Thanos is more evil? Really? Interesting. All right, the next question. Uh, which action do you think is worse to do? The first action is jaywalking when no one is around. Or two, using a friend's Netflix account. <laughs> All right, jaywalking, using a friend's Netflix account is worse. Wow, interesting. I'm learning a lot about you guys. This last question is going to get a bit more difficult. All right, who's the worst person? All right, who's the worser person? Worst, worst person. All right, the person who parks in a disabled spot when they're not disabled, or that person who sits on that seat on the bus for the elderly when there's someone elderly on the bus, all right? The, all right, so who, would, who thinks the person who parks in a disabled spot is worse? Who thinks sitting on that elderly seat on the... Wow! It wasn't easy, was it? I mean, I, I feel like those questions, I struggle... Like, I, when I ask those questions to myself, I'm like, man, they're all bad. This is hard. Uh, and I don't know about you, but the temptation was to, to, to also look around the room. Well, I could see all you guys, but to look around the room, right, and see how other people voted. You know, you want to um, silently judge what people choose and, and to think, man, why would you choose that one? Why do you think that one's worse? What makes that one, you know, uh, it's difficult, isn't it? Uh, interesting experiment, because what we discover in society is that we all have our own moral compass, don't we? We all have our own moral compass, and we see the world through a lens that's really dependent on uh, our own moral standards, through our own experiences and what we think is best by our judgment. Most of us make the call thinking uh, sometimes about ourselves or sometimes about the vulnerable around us. Some of us make the call thinking about the greater good. Uh, it's, all, it's all very philosophical, but the questions I asked, all of them had a moral element to them, didn't they? You had to think morally what is best for others around you or for uh, the people that were affected. But I guess the question that I'm always asking, what makes our judgment right? More right than others. What if our judgment is flawed? Uh, we're living in an age, aren't we, that it's, it's so much more advanced than any other age in history. We're, but there's still so much disunity. There's so much disunity on what's right and what's wrong. And why is it that there's still so much uh, ostracism in our world or hate there's still factions and opposition. There's, there's this thing called cancel culture these days and differing views on life and ethics, what is essentially good. Perhaps we need to ask ourselves, who is the one who is able to judge? And where do we stand under the judge's standard of good? Where do we stand under the standard of good? Last week was a heavy sermon as we looked at the end of chapter 1 uh, and how the world was, uh, has strayed from God, the world has strayed from God to worship not him but created things, not the creator but created things. And now Paul, the author of Romans here, 
Paul is shifting his attention away from uh, what we know as the pagans, those who don't believe in God, uh, to those who aren't living under God's rule, and turning the spotlight now onto God's own people. Uh, what he's saying is condemning, and God's own people um, during Paul's time, like his, his own people were the Jewish people. At the start of chapter 2, what was read for us, he, uh, he turns his attention uh, to those in the church, uh, which is made up of Christians, but Jewish converts on those who are ethnically Jew as well, Jewish reading this. In chapter 2, verse 1, open your Bibles and follow along with me because we're going to unpack this for us. And I'm going to do a big overview of really these two chapters uh, that was read for us and, and get a sort of bird's eye view of what's happening. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So if you were here last week, chapter 1, he actually said man is without excuse. When you look at creation, you'll see that there's a creator. Man is out with, without excuse. You choose not to worship the creator. You choose to worship created things. Here he says, therefore, you, you have no excuse too. The language completely changes. In chapter 1, it's they do this, they do that. They have no excuse. Now you, you have no excuse. He's addressing the, those in the church with, with a Jewish background, religious background, those who know God. Uh, later on in verse 17, we know he's talking about the Jews. He actually addresses them as, as and, and they're known as you know, God's covenant people. And this, and this is the picture. You're reading this, and imagine living in the first century, Middle East. You're, you're someone of Jewish ethnicity. You go to the temple regularly to worship God. You obey the laws of Israel. You know, your, 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 your textbook, good boy, good girl, right? And you walk down the streets, and you see, you see the dirtiness of others, their lifestyle, so stained with lifestyle of, of drunkenness and orgies and drugs, and you disassociate with them because they're heathens, and you're not like that. You're a good boy. You're clean. And while you're totally in agreement with how Paul points out the sins of the pagans in chapter 1, you turn the page. In chapter 2, well, the turn, turntables turn, right? You, you're just as guilty. Paul's referring to the sin that exists in the heart of every human that we'd worship ourselves over God. And here at the end of chapter 1, he states out these things. There's things like um, people who are unrighteous, disloyal, or disobedient to parents, envy, strife, malice in their hearts, guilty of gossip and slander. He says, yeah, you judge them for that lifestyle, but you are no different. You actually sin in passing judgment upon others when you yourself have sin in your own heart. You see, what Paul is doing here in Romans is actually echoing Jesus in so many ways. Uh, there's a, there's a, a story in, in um, the uh, Gospel of, of Mark where uh, Jesus is talking about sin and the sin of, of the heart. And, uh, and when he's approached by a rich man, um, Jesus says, uh, he comes to Jesus and he says, um, Good teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? You know, the, the actions uh, of the heart of man are not good. It's the heart that deceives. It's the heart that lusts, that has envy and jealousy and malice. And we're all capable of it. And Paul, he knows himself what the human heart is capable of. And so he calls out the religious, those in the church who are judging others by their standards and not by God's standards. And in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, you too will have to stand before judgment. Your eternal life will be held in the balance. Now, this would come as a shock. If you were a religious person in this day, especially for the Jews, they were ethnically God's people. They were the treasured people, 
special chosen people. This was talked about all throughout the Old Testament, throughout history. They were God's special nation. Israel, people of Jewish ethnicity. It'd be such a shock and you'd be thinking, hey, I thought we were good with God. Why is God going to judge us too? And what Paul actually writes throughout the rest of chapter 2, which we're not going to read, but I'm going to summarize it very simplistic here, but he says, just because you're Jewish, just because you have that religious affiliation, that ethnic identity, that doesn't mean you're going to be let off the hook. Just because you might have performed certain actions that make you Jewish, like circumcision, for example, it doesn't mean you get to play Judge Judy and condemn others and judge them by your standard of good. God is going to be the judge. You will be judged accordingly. This would have been super controversial. Throughout the whole Old Testament, we hear again and again about how God loves his treasured possession, his people, Israel, how he rescued them, he took care of them, he delivered them from foreign nations and slavery and exile and all that. Yet God is going to judge them like he judges the pagans, the Gentiles. And Paul says in chapter 2, verse 11, if you're following in the Bibles, it says, For God shows no partiality. All will have to stand and face God's courtroom. Who knows what the, um, the, the, the Statue of Lady Justice is? Do you guys know what the Statue of Lady Justice is? Have you guys ever walked through the CBD? Outside the courts, I don't know if it's still there, but growing up, outside the Supreme Court, there's a statue of a lady holding scales. Do you guys, is that not yep, more familiar now? Uh, if you study law, you'll know about Lady Justice. She's this... Um, there's statues of her everywhere, uh, but she's usually used at the courts, right? So she's uh, standing there, she's got a sword in one hand, she's got scales in another hand. Uh, and what's really interesting, you know, the scales represent justice, you know, the weighing of justice. Um, but more importantly, her eyes, if you look at closely at the statue, her eyes are blindfolded. Now, why is that? Why are her eyes blindfolded? It's this very thing. Justice shows no partiality. You know, the whole idea of Lady Justice is exactly what God is, is talking about here in Romans chapter 2, verse 7. God shows no partiality, no favorites. Now, this is shocking because if you lived during this time as, a, as ethnically, as, as a Jewish person, you have the law of God. I thought you were one of God's favorites. I thought we were one of God. They, they have all the rules of how to obey God and make God happy, how to please God. And they thought, well, we've been given the law and we've been circumcised, and we worship and know God and are known by God, shouldn't we get special treatment? Shouldn't we get immunity? Like that, you know, have you guys ever watched Survivor? No? No one watches Survivor? Come on. Survivor. <laughs> there are challenges. And you go through these challenges, and you're given immunity if you win that challenge. And this, this necklace. I don't even watch Survivor, but you get the idea. I know that there's an immunity necklace in this, right? And the Jews think they have this immunity necklace. And, and having the law means they've been gifted with something special that no one else has. They just follow the rules, like get circumcised and do whatever um, the law requires. They'll get immunity at Judgment Day. Being Jewish means they've got this get-out-of-jail-free card. But Paul's saying just by possessing the law, it doesn't constitute salvation. Throughout chapter 2, about, you know, he's, he's talking about how those with the law will be judged even more strictly. The reality is human beings born into sin have the ability to do some good in the world. Yes, God creates humanity with a moral compass. Yes, we're not animals. Even pagans can do good in the world. He talks about this throughout chapter 2. But for the Jews, they were the ones who, if anyone on the planet could have been righteous, it should have been them. They've been given the secret source, right, the law to live by. 
given the promise of salvation that the Messiah would come to rescue them. Instead, they take it for granted. They look down on others. They, they, they snob the very people God wants them to love. Possessing the law won't save them. It, it instead condemns them. You know, there's this thing about privilege in today's society that we talk about a lot. Especially in America, there's a lot about white privilege because of the, um, the Black Lives Matter movement. And you can imagine, being a Jewish person, you're born into this privilege. And, and you might abuse those privileges. You might look down on others because they don't have the same privileges as you do. And you're so unaware of it, but so natural to you. Paul's saying, hey, be aware of this. Be aware of the way that we live because just being Jewish doesn't mean you're going to be safe. You're going to be judged too. And Paul's able to say this because he himself is Jewish. He comes from the Jewish elite. He's speaking to his own tribe. Doing good will save you, but you know what has happened? No one actually does good. And that's where Paul is leading us to at the end of chapter 3. And this is why I, read, uh, I got Sam to read this for us. No one reaches God's standard of doing good. Chapter 3, verse 9. Let's read it again. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written, and Paul quotes the Old Testament here. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul's using quotes from the Old Testament to help the uh, Jewish readers understand that actually God has talked about this before. He has no partiality. Everyone is, uh, is not good before God, not righteous. You can think your privileged position might save you, but if we put your life under a microscope, would you, would any one of us be innocent? Regardless of your ethnicity, Jewish, religious heritage, everyone has and is under sin and found unrighteous. No one does good. And by this, he's saying, he's, he's quoting Old Testament quotes, but he's saying, God, none of us can live up to God's standard of good. And sure, you might be able to live up to your standard of good. You might not jaywalk. Great, good, on, you know, good for you. You might not use your friend's Netflix account. Good for you. But can you live up to God's standard of good? I think our subjective standard of good is, sure, I know what I think is good, and I'm going I'm to do that in this life. But no one actually fulfilled God's standard because it was the law. And the law was, was impossible to, to, to live up to. It was such a high standard. Whether you think you're the good boy or good girl, the rule keeper, the upright citizen, the religious or the rebel, we've all fallen short of God's standard. We are all under sin. That's what Paul wants us to really get here. All found and declared unrighteous. So again, imagine the courtroom. Before God, we're in the docks. We all have to stand before God's judgment. We used to um, ask this question. If you guys, who here has done Coffee and Jesus in our church? There's a few people, right? Uh, if you've done Coffee and Jesus uh, years ago, there's a question that we used to ask in, in our sessions about learning about Christianity. And this is the question. If you stood before God and asked why he should let you into heaven, how would you respond? Why should God let you into heaven? You're thinking about this question now, aren't you? Most of us would be tempted to say, God, actually, I did a lot of good stuff in this life. Uh, I tried really hard to obey my parents. I, I didn't curse that much. I studied hard. I got a successful career. And sure, you might take out all your good works and bring them before God and say, God, this is why I should be let into heaven. 
And while many of you might have done good in this life, I'm sure you have, you gave money to charity, helped the vulnerable and, and all that, our legal standing before God is the same. Even with our good works, the reality is we can't climb our way to heaven. No matter how much we want to, it's just too far. And just like those that we consider bad people in our world, God actually sees us just as guilty of sin. This is such a hard message to hear. And while the pagan might be far from God in their actions, the moral person is far from God in their hearts. Either way, none of us stands before God innocent. We're all guilty of rejecting God and His law and meeting His standard of good. And what happens in, from verse 12 to 19, we see the power of sin, all these quotes and, and the effects through, through these Old Testament quotes. None seek out God. The throat is an open grave. The tongue deceives and curses filled with bitterness. And but what he finishes with is really key. He says, there is no fear of God. Because really that's at the heart of sin, isn't it? that we uh, reject God, that we don't care about God, that there is no fear of God. What he's trying to show us is all people, there's a universality of sin. It's depressing, but it's a description of humankind unveiled. The whole world is accountable, Jew and Gentile alike, right? Jews and non-Jews alike. People like you and I, we're all going to be held accountable. So finally, in verse 20, he can conclude... To the reader, he says this, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. And what he's saying is here is the law uh, isn't some sort of secret potion, right, to, to give you immunity, as I said earlier, but it reveals to the people that they truly can't save themselves. What it shows them is that there's such a high standard that they'll never be able to meet. It's more condemning than it is anything. It's what the law reveals, that they are sinners. We are sinners. And so the answer to the question before God, if, he was, if you were to stand before him at the gates of heaven, the answer is, well, I don't deserve to come into heaven because of my sin. I don't deserve to be in your presence. I don't deserve to be in the presence of a holy and righteous God because I am unrighteous. You know, this message should make you and I feel uncomfortable. You know, many of us, we come to church to get empowered Mikey, oh, you need to take notes from Tony Robbins, you know, all those self-help influences. You know, you've got to tell me that I can do anything, that I'm the best person in the world. I can, I'm capable of anything I put my mind to. I'm not here to, to do self-help with you. I'm not here to make you feel depressed about yourself either. That's not my goal here. I'm here to preach to you the Bible and the truth about humanity and where we all stand before a good, righteous, and holy God. We need to know the bad news sometimes before we can know, we, we always need to know the bad news before we know the good news. We are all under the power of sin. And before God's courtroom, we're all guilty. And Paul writes this to the church because it's so important, so crucial to understanding where we stand before God and the need for a Savior who is perfectly good and can take away our sin. I know this makes us feel uncomfortable. No one likes to hear the message about sin. No one likes to hear the sermon come on the Sunday when we're going to talk about sin, our sin. No one wants to take a look at their own hearts and, and confront the sin. I know the temptation for many of us here who are new to church or don't uh, know anything about Christianity and still learning. We translate sin, don't we? Even Christians do this, actually. We trans translate sin to be defined as bad people doing bad things. You're a sinner means you do bad things. 
uh, a person came to our church years ago, probably in 2015, and has yet to come back. And their feedback to me was, I didn't like hearing about how I was a sinner. Because they thought themselves that they were generally, overall, a good person. But when we immediately get defensive, we're not willing actually to first understand what sin is, nor willing to reflect deeply on our own hearts. Isn't that the temptation of us, of, of the human heart? To define what we think is good by our subjective standards. For us to define what we think is sin, and for us to immediately reject that and say, well, I'm not a sinner. That, that person over there, that's a sinner. That pagan over there, the way they're living, that's what sin looks like. Someone who, who kills and, and, and hurts little children, they're the sinner. I just, you know, I just speed sometimes. Uh, yeah, sure, I get impatient with people who are slow. Uh, I gossip a little bit about my colleagues. But overall, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. Interesting, isn't it? That's how we define what sin looks like and what good looks like. And even more so in today's society, 2021, society tells us what is good, don't they? It tells us that good looks like being accepting of all people, their sexuality, how they identify themselves, to care for the environment, to give everyone rights and freedom of speech, all these good things. And I'm being very simplistic here. But we let good be defined by what society tells us, right? And so we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to, uh, we don't, we don't want to rock the boat with a majority opinion. The world says, well, you know, they say Christianity and God is a little bit out of date. He's irrelevant today. This is what you need to think of as good. Yet at the same time, we want to give everyone a voice, right, and a freedom of speech, but society and culture, they can't make up their mind with what is actually good. Yeah, sure, let's all care for the environment. I think that's so important. But actually, I don't want to be associated with, with the vegans who care about animals. Uh, they protest in steakhouses. No, I got, that's not good. Sure, I think we should be accepting of all people's sexuality and how they want to identify themselves. That's good. You know, that's what good is. You know, let's accept them. Oh, but that, oh, that, creepy, that creepy old guy who wants to act like a five-year-old girl, oh, there's something a bit mentally wrong there. That's not good. Society wants us to agree with this standard of good, but how do we navigate through actually what is good, what's right, what's wrong? where everyone's opinion will be judged by who has the loudest voice. It's so confusing, right? Now, po- postmodern, post-postmodern culture, you're entitled to your opinion, but nah, not really, if it doesn't agree with the rest of us. Society has become so tribal, and so we're in this modern, postmodern world, and if you're not on the right side of history, if you don't stand for everything that society believes is good, you're cancelled. And our progressive society has become the judge of what good is. And you feel sorry for those who are public figures, those who are celebrities, who tweet their unpopular opinions. I don't know, remember last year, or I think it was a year before, J.K. Rowling, she went onto Twitter and she shared her views on gender. She got instantly cancelled. Come on now. There's a real problem if we're going to go with the flow of culture and just agree with what our society deems good because every generation will have a standard. It wasn't that long ago, was it? hundred years, maybe. It was deemed right to treat white people better than black people. It was right up until the 50s to still have segregation. Society deemed it good. But was it the Western society? Was it right? Was it right to have slaves and not let women vote from the, you know, because the Bible actually says every man and woman are created equally in the image of God. The reality is every generation will accept the standard of good set by whoever has the loudest voice. 
And society has become the judge, and as long as you keep your mouth shut and go with the flow, you'll be spared of their judgment. So let me ask you, where did you get your standard for what is good and right in society? Who or what influenced you to have those standards? Friends, we need a judge that's good, holy and righteous. We need a judge that's actually external to humanity and what humanity thinks is right. Not only that, we need a truth and a standard of good that's not set by flawed human beings, but by an eternal, infinite God who is the source of good and holiness. See, when we come before God, we'll see ourselves for who we truly are, humanity under the power of sin, sin that prevents us from doing truly good and selfless deeds, and see that we need a Savior to deliver us from that sin. This is what we need to start with. If we don't know how flawed we are, we'll never accept the need for God or the need for a Savior. Friends, this is so important to understand in Christianity. If you're exploring the Christian faith and you're asking questions, you need, we need to understand what sin means. That we've rejected God. That we'd rather be the God over our own lives. You know, this is the question that a lot of people ask um, Christians or myself as a pastor, what makes Christianity different to all other religions? You know, I think the, the temptation for many of us, we want a religion that is dependent on what we can achieve in our control. We want to feel the sense of achievement that we ticked the boxes, did everything in our power to get on God's good side. And so if you look into the other world religions, you'll discover that it's all about doing something to get out of this broken, sinful state that we're in. Do good. Do good works to please God. Do good to reach that state of nirvana. We look up to people who we think has done so much good in our world, the Dalai Lama, Gandhi, Mother Teresa. But at the end of the day, while there are people in this world that do some and lots of good, we can't save ourselves from the sin in our hearts. No matter how many good works we do, no matter how much you follow God's laws, no matter how much you give to charity or love your parents or stand with social justice movements, the reality is you and I are human and our hearts are still stained with pride and selfishness and greed and have strayed from God. See, by the world's standards, maybe Santa's standards, you might qualify as a good boy or good girl, but is that going to be enough before the God of the universe? Santa isn't real, but before the God of the universe. Paul the Apostle who wrote this letter, he would have for sure, as a Jewish man, followed the law to the T. But even he himself calls himself the worst of sinners. You and I are before God. We're sinners just like those we point to in society who are the worst kind of sinners. The dictators, the child molesters, the men who threaten their wives and their children and are holed up in a 26-hour siege in Sunnybank. It's so easy to judge them and by, judge their actions. But you and I, we're just as guilty before God for our sin, the sin of our hearts. You see, we need to hear the bad news that Romans tells us about in these opening chapters. Paul, in his love for the church, Paul, in his love for us here at Providence, he lays it out clearly with this strong language, yes, but he wants the reader to ask themselves, take a look at your heart and ask, where are you at with God? Do you know that you'll have to face judgment that you need a savior? You see, that's the point of this passage. God wants us to see the consequences so none of us are unprepared. Even for us who come to church each week, 
For us here who are, who are pastors, who are leaders in the church, who serve on Sundays, the Christian who walks through our doors, you might have the label and define yourself as a follower of Jesus, but do you truly know and are aware of your sin? Do you truly know your need for a saviour? What makes Christianity different to all the other religions is that Jesus came down to us. He knew that we couldn't work our way to heaven. He came to us to save us. See, having the title of Christian isn't some privilege that will rescue you. Just because you come to Providence Church, it doesn't mean you're going to be saved. But have faith in the Savior, the one who can save you. Live out repentance and obedience. That, will, that is what's going to make us righteous before God, our faith in Him. In chapter 1, Paul said that the righteous live by faith. It's God who rescues us in His Son, Jesus, who takes the guilty verdict for us so we can be set free from the courtroom. That's what His death and resurrection accomplishes for us. Through faith, we're made right with God. We are made righteous. You see, what Paul is highlighting to us in big, bold words in these chapters is, until you see your need for a Savior, you'll never receive the Savior. If you don't know how great the power of sin is over your heart, you'll never see how good and sweet and powerful the gospel of Jesus truly is. Friends, we need to know and see our need. So what do we do with all this? Firstly, we need to come before God in humility and repentance. Stop comparing yourself to the sinner, that pagan next door, but compare and see yourself before Jesus. Own your sin. Own it. Be honest to yourself and be honest to God. If you don't own your sin, you'll never truly confront it nor see the depth and seriousness of it. I know you might not think this applies to you. It applies to the person next to you. It's so easy, isn't it? Because we put ourselves at the center of the universe and say, actually, God, God actually should be really pleased with me. I do go to church every Sunday. I do give my money to church. I serve at church even with my time. And we might even be tempted to think, oh, I'm actually, you know, I'm actually doing God a favor for showing up volunteering my time, God should be really happy with me. But do you realize what our hearts are doing in that moment? It's actually showing contempt to the God of the universe when we make it me-centric. It's about how good I am and how much I do. And we look at the others around us and see, man, that person's not pulling their weight. This person doesn't do half the things I do. They're such heathens. Man, we need Jesus. <laughs> We need to come before God in need of forgiveness. Not to, not to beat ourselves up and, and say that we suck and all that. Don't go home and have a pity party and think that you're a loser. It's not about that. Rather, it's to see ourselves as we should. Not by how much we've done, but to have a heart of faith and thankfulness that God in His love and grace delivers us through Jesus. Paul will turn, to us, will, will turn us to that love of God and, and, and in, in further chapters in Romans, we'll be able to see, we'll be empowered and confident to know that we're loved children of God. But for now, here in chapter 2 and 3, the purpose is to know, firstly, where do we stand before God? And if this is true, right, the second thing I think that we should drive us, it should drive us to, all of us here, all of us here who call ourselves Christian, it should drive us to proclamation, shouldn't it? We've all fallen short. We can't get right with God without Jesus. We need a Savior. We all need a Savior. If this is true, if you're a Christian, do you believe this? If you believe this, do you realize that the people around you, the, the family you love, the spouse, the friend at work, the guys 
you, you go to the gym with or play soccer with, the girls you go dancing with, whatever, your friends need to hear this message of salvation. We all need to feel the weight of this because eternity is at stake. You know, so when you come to church, I want to get this straight, and you serve here, which is great. I'm so thankful for our serving teams that give up their time every Sunday. They get here at 8 o'clock. I'm so thankful. But when you come here to serve at church, you're not here to fill a roster. You serve here at church because what we do at church, the ministries that we do here, is to point people to the life-saving work of Jesus, to the gospel. Church isn't a social club. It's not here to make yourself, to make, I'm not here to do self-help, right? To make you feel good about yourself. If you do feel good about yourself, great, I'm glad you do. But it's a community of people around the gospel. That's why it's at the center of this. It's making much of Jesus. That's what we do here. The message that we need a, a savior to save us from our sin and our guilt. And honestly, I'm so glad that there are some of you who come to church because you, you love it and it's fun and you can connect with friends. Man, that's all a bonus. I'm so glad that some of you here love coming to church for those reasons. But the community of God's people here are coming together each week because we want to be on about Jesus. If we believe the greatest need for humankind is to be rescued from judgment and the sin of our hearts, then do you see why we gather every week? Why we even exist? Why we do what we do? We need to invest our time and concern and passion into this very message that we need a Savior. Everyone needs a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. It's a question I keep asking myself. What am I invested in? Am I invested in proclaiming Jesus with my life? And while our sport and our entertainment and our careers can consume us, we need to look at what our life is centered upon. What is our identity centered upon? Is it on these very things that are temporary in this world that won't make really any difference in eternity? Or is it built and centered upon Jesus? I think our lives really are so built around collecting things that don't really matter. We're so focused on building up our wealth, our investment portfolio, our stocks, our collection of sneakers, if that's your thing, video games, our fitness, our achievements and hobbies, and one day we're going to stand before God. What do you expect is going to happen? Are you going to be really excited to come before God and say, hey God, look at, look at all, this, these, all this stuff I've amassed. Look at all the sneakers I've accumulated in my life. Aren't you impressed? Aren't you impressed by my muscles? and how long I spend at the gym every day. Aren't you impressed by how many followers I have on Instagram? It's pretty impressive, right? How many books I've read, how many computer games I've finished, how many movies I've watched. Aren't you impressed by all these trophies and medals and awards and degrees and promotions? Look at the big house I live in. Look at the car that I drive. God, look at how much I've achieved. Really? Is God going to be impressed that you spent your life collecting sneakers and indoor plants, Mikey? You've got to get, you know, really. Eternity hangs in the balance. And your life and the lives of others around will face potentially a Christless eternity. So who or what will we live for? Will we seek repentance and self-reflection and awareness and proclaim that we need a Savior? And what Savior is wo- and that Savior is worthy of our lives? You know, when you look at this, the lives of people like Jesus in the Bible and Paul, the apostle of Jesus, the disciples of the early church, their lives were consumed by this. They didn't even get married because they wanted to spend their lives telling people about Jesus. 
The idea of sin and judgment drove their very hearts to go out and tell everyone about the gospel. They knew the depth and seriousness of this problem in humanity. They wanted the world to know. They wanted lives to be saved. They wanted souls to be saved from facing the eternal wrath of God and instead enter into the presence of God's goodness for eternity. Is that what you and I will be consumed by in this short life that God has given us? Do we know where we once stood in God's courtroom without Jesus? Do we now know why Jesus matters so much? Do we know that the gospel of Jesus is the very message that everyone on this planet needs to hear? If you do, will you be compelled today to be humbled, to be aware of your sin and flaws, to be repentant, to turn to Jesus in faith and thankfulness and obedience? Will you be compelled to proclaim this news to others? Last night, I got onto um, a Reddit forum. Uh, it was Ask Reddit. It's one, it's one of the most interesting forums. People ask the most random questions. And there was a question that was trending that they asked this question, right? How would you feel if there was a reality TV show where flat earthers, people who believe in fat, flat earth theory, have to find the edge of the world? How would you feel watching a reality TV show about that? Such an interesting question. And, I, and you know, it was so intriguing. I, I, you know, I'd love to watch this reality TV show. And I know that if I watch it, I would be probably laughing at them. I'd be watching it and I'd be, knowing me, shaking my head. If you guys know me, I shake my head a lot. And, uh, and thinking, well, I'll be silently judging them. That's what I do. In my sin, I do that. And I was processing that. I was looking at this question, this subreddit, and I was looking at this question and I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I wonder how God sees me. I wonder how God sees Mikey in my my own reality TV show, wandering through this life obsessed and occupied by things that don't really matter. I mean, if I was God, I'd be silently judging me too, shaking my head, thinking, man, what is this guy doing? But maybe that's the wake-up call we need, to actually re-evaluate our lives and to remember who is the judge of the universe and how does he see us. Maybe we need to start confessing some stuff to God. Maybe we need to admit that we don't get it right all the time, that we are flawed and have hurt God and have hurt others, that our hearts are sinful and that we need a saviour. Maybe it's time to step out of the me-centric universe that I've built around me and see how God calls you and I to live in this world by faith in him. That's my prayer for us today. And I'm going to pray that now, that we'll be able to see ourselves for who we are before God but we also see the good news that we do have a saviour that reached down to us. And by his goodness, we're, we're saved. So let's pray that now. Father, we do thank you for the gospel. We need to know these truths about who we are and where we stand. None of us are perfect. Our hearts are stained by sin the temptation to uh, not acknowledge you in this life, to reject you, the temptation uh, and desire to be God over our own lives, to be king and queens over our own, uh, on, on our own thrones. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us that there were the times when we could have uh, honoured you and worshipped you and lived for you, but we chose to live for ourselves. There are times we could have loved people and we chose to love ourselves. All these things, Lord, daily that we struggle with in our sin, Lord, forgive us. But Lord, by your Spirit, show us who you are. Remind us day by day the goodness of the gospel, that we are saved by a good and gracious Savior, our Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to be repentant in our sin. Help us to be obedient to you and to how you've called us to live 
in Jesus. And we pray, Lord, as we do that, our lives will be a proclamation, not only through our speech, but through our actions, through the way we love our world around us. We'll be telling the world, Lord, that there is a greater truth to live by, that there is a God who loves us, a God who knows us, and a God who calls us back to Him to live by His standard of good. Help us to be a people, Lord, who desire that. And Lord, to see many hear that message of good news that we are saved from our sin by Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.